Welcome to Working History, produced by the Southern Labor Studies Association. Become a member online at www.southernlaborstudies.org. I'm series host Beth English, and today we're speaking with Julie Green, professor of history at the University of Maryland. She is the author or editor of several books, including most recently, The Canal Builders, Making America's Empire at the Panama Canal. She is currently at work on another book, Box 25, The World of Caribbean Workers. Professor Julie Green, welcome to Working History. Thank you, Beth. It's great to be here. So you're working on a new book project that you're tentatively titling Box 25, The World of Caribbean Workers. Can you tell us about the book? Um, And maybe a good place to start would be to ask you, what is Box 25? Sure. Yes, absolutely. So Box 25 is is a box in the archives at the Library of Congress, and it holds this remarkable collection of memoirs that were conducted as part of a competition held by the Isthmian Historical Society in 1963. The idea was, through this competition, to try to generate brief memoirs or testimonies by canal workers who had helped to build the Panama Canal. The competition was calling for the best true stories of life and work on the Panama Canal. Mm -hmm. This competition generated submissions by a little more than 100 workers uh, who had built the canal, who had dug, who had planted dynamite, who had laid tracks. And it's one of the best sources we have on the ordinary uh, lives of the Caribbean, mostly Caribbean canal workers. Um, These were workers who were riding in their twilight years, you know, decades Mm -hmm. after they had worked on the canal. Mm -hmm. And they wrote really beautifully, really poignantly about their lives and their labor. Um, So it's an amazing set of memoirs. It's a set of memoirs that have been used by many historians. I used these sources when I wrote my book on the construction of the Panama Canal, the canal builders. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought, you know, it's such a tantalizing collection. And it's so remarkable that, that these men's lives are held in box 25 in the United States at the Library of Congress, why they're here, why they're not in Panama, where Panamanian people could access them more mm-hmm. easily is, mm-hmm. is part of the story. Uh, that I'm telling. So the the goal in this book is to analyze the memoirs in Box 25 themselves, but also to use them as a jumping off point to see what more I can learn about these men uh, by tracing them in other archives and by seeing what their lives, their, their travels, their families, their loves and labors can tell us about the vast Caribbean diaspora in the early 20th century. Mm-hmm. So, what what initially got you interested in in this topic? You um, you mentioned your your one of your earlier books, The Canal Builders, um, and I'm assuming this is sort of connected to that in some way. Absolutely, it really grew out of my work on the history of the construction of the canal. But you know, to back up before that, the the big picture is that I'm interested in scholarship that helps us connect the the United States to broader global dynamics. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's really what motivated 
the book on the construction of the Panama Canal. I'm, I'm interested in thinking about problematizing the territorial boundaries of the nation state um, and not taking it for granted that those boundaries should also limit our knowledge about the history of the United States. Um, today and historically, the United States has been a part of the world, not, not just a part of it, but a huge influence. Mm -hmm. And as a labor historian, I know that what's happening in New Jersey or Detroit or Denver is important, but to me, it's even more exciting to connect that to the ways that U.S. history includes a global working class. Um, if you think about the turn of the 20th century, for example, the, the period I work on, think about the ways in which the War of 1898 meant victory in that war, meant that the United States acquired an empire that stretched halfway around the world from Cuba and Puerto Rico to Hawaii and onward to the Philippines. And at the same time, U.S. corporations are also expanding their reach uh, typically with support from the U.S. government. So my thinking is that we need to, um, to think harder about that global expansionism of the United States and consider how that connects to the history of the U.S. working class. Mm -hmm. In the case of the Panama Canal, for example, the United States brought more than 100,000 workers from all over the world to the Isthmus of Panama, mostly workers from the Caribbean, people of African descent, especially from Jamaica and Barbados, but they also came from the U.S., Canada, from Italy and Spain and India. The United States used really harsh discipline, authoritarianism, and a pervasive system of racial segregation to manage these workers. And mm -hmm. so that, to me, that's a big history that needs to be connected to our understanding of U.S. labor history. Can you tell us um, about some of the workers you've discovered? You just mentioned, you know, for example, um, you know, very uh, sort of authoritarian approach to, um, you know, to labor conditions, for example. So um, what did you learn or what are you learning out of, um, you know, out of the sources from Box 25? Sure. So one of the exciting things about this project has been finding other archives that would reveal the lives of the men in Box 25. And so uh, the, the most important source I've found has been the personnel records of the U.S. government mm -hmm. that, that mm -hmm. constructed the canal held at the National Archives. And through those personnel records, I've found about two-thirds of the men who wrote memoirs for that competition. Wow. Is that sort of remarkable, uh, you know, that you can track these, you know, ostensibly very ordinary kind of guys through records like this? Well, it's, you know, it's a great thing about a vast uh, and somewhat compulsive bureaucracy mm -hmm. like right. the United yeah. States government, that the United States was was almost as concerned with efficiently documenting its labor practices and its, uh, you know, its management, its discipline, and, and it's really, it's almost its sort of objectification of these 100,000 or so men mm -hmm. as it was with the actual construction effort. Right. Uh, and so as a result, there's just tons of records. A lot of them are unprocessed. So finding these particular men was difficult and was very much hit or miss. Mm -hmm. um, but when you find them, it 
you know, you take this story they wrote for for the competition that's held in Box 25 that's maybe, you know, three to five pages about what they were doing on the construction, and then suddenly you connect that to their personnel record, mm-hmm. and a, a whole world opens up. Uh, some of the documents, for example, are there's a, a certain document called the Application for Photo Metal Check that was created in 1918, uh, and it includes a photograph of each of the men, and it includes uh, in- information about their physical characteristics. Oh, that's so it's really interesting to see how the U.S. government bureaucracy is really, in a sense, kind of marking and commodifying these mm-hmm. men mm-hmm. um you know it's it's telling you he's whether they know english or not whether they're considered by u.s government standards black or brown it lists physical problems a missing finger missing teeth a scar over the left eyebrow and so it's fascinating to to use these documents to watch the bureaucracy at work mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what was life like for uh, for these workers in the canal zone and how did they how did they live daily how did they work daily how did they interact with one another Sure so I think their lives were pretty amazing they were leaving work as basically landless agricultural workers in Jamaica or Barbados or some of the smaller islands like Grenada or Antigua um they were leaving difficult and impoverished lives there. To many, this was a, a, a sense that they were embarking on an adventure, that they, they hoped to improve their, their living conditions, their, their financial situation. They were taking a gamble that life and work on the Yankees project um, would improve their lives. And mm-hmm. what they found was, I think, in a lot of ways, they were taken aback both by the kind of the regimentation and discipline and bureaucracy, but also by the the dangers they faced. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a remarkable project. Uh, uh, they had to dig through the Continental Divide. They were removing some 170 million cubic feet of dirt. They had to deal with constant torrential rain showers, avalanches, premature dynamite explosions, railroad accidents, and diseases. Even Mm -hmm. though the U.S. early on conquered yellow fever, malaria remained a problem throughout the period. So, Mm -hmm. So it was really just an astonishing astonishing effort. And based on the the memoirs in Box 25, we know that it was very common for these men to feel that the U.S. government cared little about their their troubles and Mm. and the challenges they faced. One man uh, named Albert Bannister, for example, talked about how casually death would appear in conversations. He said, man die, get blow up, get kill, or get drown. Someone would ask, where's Brown? Well, he died last night and buried. Where's Jerry? He dead a little before dinner and buried, mm-hmm. and so on all the time. Uh, another worker said, it was nothing unusual to be walking on Front Street, and suddenly you see a yard engine with one flat car attached with dead men stretched out whose faces can't be seen because of a piece of clean white canvas covers their faces. Mm. Um, 
they wrote a lot about this sort of feeling that um, they were at war, they were soldiers in a war, they would develop strategies like uh, they often had only one set of clothes, they would come home wet from the rain and they'd leave for work the next day still uh, with their clothing wet. Mm. Um, and so it was things like their sense that they had to have the spirit of a soldier that kept them going. They also, you know, they also developed many other sources of support and, and sometimes very hidden forms of agency and resistance. Um, they, they developed communities. They increasingly, as the years went on, uh, their women folk, mothers sometimes, wives, children came and joined them, mm -hmm. um, their religion, leisure activities, and finding ways to resist the government's authority, especially through mobility. They would change their jobs, they would change their where they lived, so as to create a little more space in their lives and in their work to better their situation. Mm -hmm. And can you give us a little sense um, of the scope of the project in terms of geographically? How big of a space are we talking about? How many workers overall are we talking about? Um, you know, when you just mentioned that, you know, one of the strategies is to change jobs or to move someplace else. How difficult or easy would that be to do? So the, the scope of this, the, the Caribbean diaspora as a whole is, you know, people are moving around, they're moving to the canal and, and home to their home islands. Um, there's vast movement that happens as the canal project is finished in the mid-teens as the U.S. government tries to get rid of as many of these workers as possible. Um, for many of them, the goal was to save their money and migrate onward to the United States. Mm -hmm. So this this diasporic movement generated by the canal project really is the origins of the caribbean american community in the united states mm -hmm. uh on the isthmus of panama itself mobility um you know it, the canal zone which was was effectively us territory granted to the united states in perpetuity by the treaty that the the young panamanian government signed this canal zone was a, a pretty large space, about 40 miles long, about uh, 10 miles wide. Mm -hmm. um, and we know, that, uh, we know that these workers are moving around because we see the U.S. government trying to take action to make it stop. Mm -hmm. um, so we know that workers are, if they're digging in, um, you know, in one section of the job, they disappear from the payroll for a while. Um, they might reemerge in another section where the pay is better, or they might not reemerge at all because they've changed their name. Mm, okay. uh, that's another thing the government did was try to issue policies to make it harder for workers to change their names. But, of course, that was something ultimately they couldn't control. Um, changing residencies became an even larger problem for the government. Um, the, the government required that workers who were living in the labor camps created by the U.S. were required to pay for their meals in government cafeterias. And the Caribbean workers had many 
many special words for how horrible they found the government food. Mm. Um, they just thought it was completely despicable. And so increasingly, as the years went on, in larger and larger numbers, workers moved out of the labor camps and moved into Panama City or Cologne, mm -hmm. uh, where housing was very expensive and congested, but it still meant that workers could deal with food as they wanted. It meant they couldn't be evicted from the labor camps if there was a labor action. And so this became a huge problem for the U.S. And the U.S. government officials tried to respond by uh, ending the requirement that the workers buy their food in cafeterias. But even this didn't change the situation. By the end, only something like 20% of the workers were actually living in the U.S. government labor camps. So in terms of some of these strategies that you're talking about for how, how workers um, tried to improve their, their lives in, you know, as they worked on, on, the, on the canal, it, it seems like there was sort of a combination of both individual strategies, for example, moving out, you know, out of a government um, uh, camp. And then you also mentioned that that was a, a buffer should there be any problem with a collective action? Were there collective actions in terms of, um, you know, group protests against conditions or pay or what have you? It was very difficult for Caribbean workers to launch collective actions because the United States government carefully kept such a vast surplus of Afro-Caribbeans so that they could easily fire anyone mm -hmm who didn't work productively or who engaged in an action. So in the earliest years, we have a few limited strike actions and a few riots. But as the United States bureaucracy gets established in the canal zone and, and discipline becomes more regimented, this stops. And it's not until the period after the construction is completed that you see uh, collective action breaking out. And then, and then you do. There's a, a large silver strike. The silver workers are the um, predominantly Caribbean workers who are on the silver payroll mm -hmm. immediately after World War I. There's a huge rent strike in Panama City in the mid-1920s. And there's, a lot of, there's just a general discussion in that post-war period kind of similar to what's happening in the U.S. You know, there's British West Indies regiment soldiers. Uh, Panama sent a lot of Anglo-Caribbeans to World War I, and they come back somewhat radicalized, somewhat militant. Garveyism is spreading through the, the canal zone and pier area. And there's increasingly a sense among Caribbean workers at that time that in the construction period, they put up with the conditions uh, they put up with the feeling of disrespect, and in the post-war period, they're not willing to tolerate that anymore. At the same time, by the post-war period, of course, the, the labor force is much smaller, uh, and so it, it just becomes a very different dynamic altogether. Mm -hmm. And so what are or are there um, things that surprised you and continue to surprise you as you, as you do this research? Right. That's been one of the exciting things uh, about this. You know, I had written about these men in Box 25 for canal builders because their 
their portrayals of their life and work was so memorable. But in the personnel records, suddenly their entire lives opened up for me because the interestingly, the the people I found in the personnel records tend to be people who remained in the employment of the Canal Zone government for decades. Oh, and so I'm able to trace them, not just during the construction period itself, but all the way up to typically their retirement sometime in the 1960s and then to their death, uh, most often in the 1970s and 1980s. So I, I get this kind of broad sense of a large group of workers' lives. One example is a young man named Constantine Parkinson, who I wrote about in The Canal Builders. He, he wrote such an evocative, a sad and tragic, but evocative memoir that's held in Box 25. He was an unusual young guy because he was actually born on the Isthmus of Panama. His father had moved to the Isthmus to work mm -hmm. on the French canal effort in the 1880s. So mm -hmm. he had been born Constantine in the 1890s. He went to work at, a, at about the age of 14 for the, um, for the U.S. government, and he gradually worked his way up to a job on the railroad. In 1913, 18 years old, working as a railroad brakeman, he fell victim to a train accident. Mm. He's uh, rushed to the hospital and undergoes surgery to amputate one of his legs and part of his other foot. He survived the surgery, and in his memoir, he remembered what he saw as he awakened in the hospital. He said, I notice all kinds of cripples around my bed without arms, foot, one eye, telling me to cheer up, not to fret. We all good soldiers. Mm. That was about all I knew about Parkinson. Mm -hmm. And I, of course, wondered what became of him. And right. so to find him in the personnel records was thrilling to see a photograph of him, to see his angular face staring into the camera, a jaunty hat on his head. After all this time of thinking about his experiences to see the writing under physical deformities or peculiarities, mm -hmm. just said lost right leg. Hmm. His story then unfolded for me in the pages that followed. And it turned out that after he lost his leg, he recuperated for two years but then, remarkably, he spent the next 42 years working for the U.S. government wow. on the Panama Canal. The government found him jobs he could do despite his disability. They gave him an artificial leg. He worked for most of the decades as a watchman in the customs department. Mm -hmm. And the file documented not only that he continued working for the canal, but that he pretty relentlessly worked, pushed the U.S. government to give him a new artificial leg over the years, several times as medical technologies improved. Mm -hmm. uh, finally, when he retired in 1957, in an article in the newspaper, it turned out that he was a longtime shop steward for AFSME's Local 900, mm. that he had contributed to various community programs over the years. And so 
through these pages of the personnel file, his life kind of comes before me, and I was able to follow him then through his beginning to receive disability pay in the late 50s, all the way to his death finally in 1989. So, so one of the, to answer your question, one of the surprising things was just to, to get a sense of the, the breadth of these men's lives, to see sometimes the, the very hidden forms of resistance or ways of pushing the government to do what it should. The other really remarkable surprise to me has been seeing the way that women's lives come to light through the personnel records. Hmm. Box 25 is almost entirely testimonies written by men. There's literally just one by a woman and it's very brief and, you know, it's just a paragraph and it's not informative Mm -hmm. at all. But in exploring the personnel records of the the men in box twenty five, and I should add, I've I've to kind of round out my knowledge of the workforce in general. I've examined the personnel records of a few hundred other men besides those in box twenty five. Mm-hmm. And if I, as I've examined the records, the importance of women comes through uh, in many many different ways. The there's much discussion in the records of, of mothers, of wives, of daughters. Often canal workers will ask the government for help finding a family member who has migrated onward to Cuba or Costa Rica or the United States, and they've lost track of, of this family member. The most common way, though, that women enter the personnel records is women contact the U.S. government to get its help securing child support Hmm. from the father of her children. Often these are, sometimes these are married couples who have separated, sometimes they're domestic partners, but there are many such cases in the records, and often the correspondence goes on for years with many details along the way about the couple's relationship, the reasons for their breakup, the role the father is playing or refusing to play in children's lives. And of course, the, you know, the lives of any Caribbean workers in the canal zone are hard to trace, male or female, but the, the women who who move to the canal zone are the most difficult to research. They, they usually, almost all of them were working for a wage, but mostly they were not working for the U.S. government, mm-hmm. but rather they were part of an informal economy. So there aren't nearly as many sources. And so to be able to, to kind of read between the lines of the personnel records and bring the women's lives to light uh, has been a has been a great thing. So just circling back and and sort of connected to what you just mentioned about needing to uh, to some extent read between the lines of of personnel records to to get at this bigger story. I'm curious, um, sort of methodologically speaking, as a historian, how you approach the the memoirs that are in Box Twenty Five. For instance, someone who's writing thirty years, forty years out, whatever it might be, and as you had mentioned, writing in their twilight years. So how do you balance that kind of source against, say, one that is 
far more immediate, like a diary or a letter. Um, how do you approach the, the memoir? Mm-hmm. That's interesting. One of the reasons I wanted to grapple more fully with these memoirs is because I, I thought after I wrote The Canal Builders, I, I realized that there was so much more to think about mm-hmm. in them. You know, I, I use them in The Canal Builders, and I think most historians use them for their dramatic depiction of the dangers and the, the horrors that canal work involved. I think that to, to look at them as a whole and think about why these men were writing, they were hoping to win a prize. There was a money prize, not much, but these were retired canal workers who had never made a lot of money and probably were struggling financially. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a sense in them of stressing in particular the certain aspects. The hardship is particularly stressed. There's a, a tone of, in many of them, not in all of them, but in many of them, there's a tone of kind of praising the U.S. government. Mm. Again, I think because they they saw this as a way to emerge as a, a prize-winning entry. So I, I thought that those kinds of issues needed to be interrogated more fully. And I also wanted to think more about who who it was that happened to respond to the competition. Mm-hmm. 110 men out of maybe 120,000 who traveled to the canal zone to work on the, on the project, what, what um, distinguished those 110. And, and if you think about it that way, it's also clear that, that this was a specific group of men. They tended to be more skilled they tended to be men who stayed working for the U.S. government after the construction finished. Again, that's why I've been able to find so many of them in the personnel records, because these are not men who just worked for five or eight years and then went on to Cuba or the United States. These tend to be men who stayed there for decades. Mm-hmm. And and so the, the skill issue, the level of education issue, of course, Caribbean workers as a whole are one of the most um, educated diasporas that we've known in modern history. But when we think of the Caribbean canal workers, we sort of the stereotype we have of them is that they were the laborers, they were the unskilled guys who were digging the dirt. The, the fact is that over the course of the construction period, the U.S. government was gradually training Caribbeans to have skills so that they could replace more expensive white workers. And so more and more, by the end of the construction period, there were more what the government called artisans among the Caribbean workers than there were laborers. Mm-hmm. So they were, they were working as artisans as uh, blacksmith helpers, they might be called, or carpenters helpers. But in fact, they had the same skills as any white skilled worker as a blacksmith or a carpenter. So to think more carefully about the fact that these are the men who had the ability and the resources and the motivation to respond to this competition kind of changes how we think about the collection as a whole. Mm -hmm. What do you see 
as the significance of these workers and their migrations for U.S. history more broadly? Right, yeah, um, because I am a, a historian, a labor historian of the United States, and I, you know, that's how I come to this subject. This kind of circles back to something I mentioned earlier. I think that to me, to understand the United States, an ex- one exciting part of that is to take seriously its role in the world and its engagement with broader global dynamics. But I think that approach, you know, what some people call transnational history, has particular significance for us as labor and working class historians. Mm -hmm. Working class history is, it's not just that it's made on a global stage, the working class itself is global. Mm-hmm. Working class history in the 19th and 20th century is very much a history of global labor migration and diaspora, the way I see it. You know, mm-hmm. decades ago, Herbert Gutman wrote very influentially about the ways that mass immigration, in effect, made and remade over and over again the American working class. I that approach, that insight has always influenced me, but I, I think we need to push it even further and globalize it to connect our understanding of U.S. labor history more fully to global transformations and migrations. And Caribbean workers are a really great example of this. They, they became more worldly, more cosmopolitan as a result of all the complex movements, the the canal project, various railroad projects, corporate expansionism, all generated. And their diaspora was, it was one of the the most complex. And and they as a group, as I said, were one of the most educated we've seen in, in modern history. And so across the hemisphere, and including in the United States, they became really key players in the the artistic, the literary, the radical, and the labor movement history of the working class. So to think about the U.S. working class itself, it's important to understand those influences and, and to think about the ways in which Caribbeans in particular connected U.S. working class history to an international hemispheric network of radicals, artists, and labor activists that stretched much more broadly than the traditional boundaries of the United States. Well, that gives us quite a lot to to think about. So, Julie Green, thank you for sharing this new book project with us, and we'll be looking forward to seeing it in print. Great. Thank you so much. I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you again to Julie Green, Professor of History at the University of Maryland, for speaking with us. Professor Green is the author of the forthcoming book, Box 25, The World of Caribbean Workers. And thank you for joining us for this episode of Working History, a production of the Southern Labor Studies Association. Visit us online and become a member at www.southernlaborstudies.org and follow Working History on Twitter at Working History. History.